Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. A few weeks ago, uh, I, uh, I injured my elbow pretty bad, um, and I wish there was more of a story to it than that, but there isn't. Like, I woke up one morning, and I couldn't, like, move it the whole way, and I went, I wish there was a better story. Like, and I started thinking through the day before, and did I hit it on something, or did one of my kids hit it with something? Because when you're raising three of them, it happens sometimes, and, uh, and I just could not think of what had caused the pain, but I knew that it hurt. And so I thought back to my days of like high school football. And it's like, well, you ice an injury. This is what I'll do. And I put ice on it most of that day. And slowly but surely, I started being able to, to kind of move it again. And as days went by, the, the pain started going away, which was helpful and good, except for when I would hit it. Uh, you know, they call it a funny bone. It's not funny. Like, it's not funny at all. Uh, and my kids would come to give me a hug, and it would hurt. Or I'd go to sit down at the dinner table, and I would not follow my mom's instructions from growing up. And I'd put my elbows on the table, and it would hurt. And I was like, oh, maybe that's why she said not to do that. Whatever it was, there was just this pain that was not there until I touched it. And then it absolutely was. And uh, I went to the doctor Finally, after a couple weeks of Christine going, you should probably go see someone. I went and saw someone, and they did all kinds of tests. They did blood work on me. They did an x-ray. They were trying to figure out why is this guy in here with this kind of pain, and finally sat down with the doctor with, with the results, and she goes, so you're getting older. It's like, wait, that's the diagnosis? Like, that's it? She goes, yeah, when you, when you get close to 40, like, things like this happen. I was like, oh, 40 is the worst. What is happening? Uh, and some of you, you know, af- uh, between services today, people go, wait till you get to 50. I wish somebody said, like, wait till you get to 50. It's so great. If you could share those stories, that'd be cool, too. But uh, that's basically what the doctor said was there is no magic pill to take. There is no secret serum we can inject you with. Like, you kind of just have to give it time. Let it heal. You're going to be Okay. Stop whining. Was kind of the, that was kind of the, the thing that she said. And I, I kind of have been, you know, wearing an elbow pad sometimes around town. If you see me, that's been a thing. Uh, just letting it, letting it heal up. And as it's been healing and as I've been preparing for today's message and for this series that we're in as a church, uh, I've been tying the two things together and going, I think these are related. Because here's the thing. I think most of us in this room have an injury like this in our lives. It might not be physical, though. Maybe you have an emotional injury. Something that at, that at one point in your life happened to you and the pain has mostly gone away until you see that person, right? Or until that text message comes through and you see their name. Or you hear a word or a phrase that was said to you once that caused pain and it causes it again. And most days it's fine, but when it's touched, it hurts. Or maybe, maybe you have a, a spiritual injury, Maybe, maybe something happened at a church or on behalf of a church or someone who did something in Jesus' name that you went, if that was Jesus' name, either that person is off or that Jesus is off, and I want nothing to do with what is going on there. And, and you might be carrying a spiritual injury with you today. I think in those moments, it's helpful for us to name what they are, 
And it's helpful for us to create a safe space for healing to happen. And our church, that's what we're trying to do. We're in a series called Without Question. And we're actually trying to create space for all the questions. Last week specifically, Pastor Jim uh, asked the question, can it be proven that Jesus rose from the dead? Can, can the resurrection be proven? And just created space for that. Next week, we're going to gather together and talk about, so what about all the world religions? Like, can we say that one is right more than, like, why are there so many? And Pastor Jim's going to go in to that today, we're simply asking the question, why should I care what the Bible says? Like, why? Why should we care? And some of us have wondered that question, but then we let it kind of go to the back burner, and days go by, and weeks go by, and months go by, and we don't think of it until we do, and there's some kind of pain associated with it. And so today, we're going we're gonna to create a safe space and go into this thing together. And actually, we're going to make it a little bit interactive. If you have your phone and you have the, the church app, uh, I would love for you to be able to pull it out. And there's a survey today that we'd love for you to take. Uh, the question is this, how much of the Bible have you personally read? It's a great question to start with, with where we're going. And you'll see that people today have already started engaging with this question. And we have some who've never personally read any of it. It's been read to them, maybe. Maybe they've heard it in sermons, but on their own, they've not yet read it and they're here and they're in our midst. There are some who would say that they uh, have read several passages or stories. Others have read at least half of it. There's a, there's a section of us who've read the whole thing. But it's an important question to ask if we're going to go into why should we pay attention to what it says, we should go, well, how much of it have we read so we know where to start? And before we get much uh, further, I want to take, take a second and take a moment and, and pray and invite God into this space and into this moment that he might be able to speak to us uh, today, knowing this, that some of us come here with hurt and with pain, and, and we need healing. And so we're going to ask God to, to even now begin healing those things that are hurt and broken in our lives. And we're going to ask him to meet us in this place. Uh, join me in prayer. Uh, God, we recognize that you are here today. And that your spirit is with us in this room. God, you are in the chapel. You are with those who are watching online and listening to the podcast. And we pray that in this moment, you would begin speaking to each of us. God, that as we look at the Bible and what it has to say about life, would you use that to change our lives? Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. So I do want to say good morning to the chapel. We're excited that you're with us today. If you're watching online this evening, good evening. Good to be with you. You might be listening to the podcast, right? And it might be three weeks from now, and you are on a commute, and traffic is terrible. So uh, hopefully you make it through and make it where you're going. But for those of us in the room today, I want us to first talk about uh, what is the Bible? You know, if we're going to talk about what the Bible says and, and why we should maybe pay attention to what it says it's, it's helpful to talk about what it is. And a lot of people treat the Bible like it's a book. And, and we talk about it like it's a book. But actually, the, the Bible is a library of books. It's 66 books in total, written kind of over the course of about 2,000 years, but telling a story that's much longer even than that. And those 66 books were written by, traditionally, we know of 35 authors who wrote those 66 books, but we know that another 5 to 10 people have probably uh, put their words to those books without putting their name. And so it's a group of about 40 people writing 66 books, uh, and it's a library. So anytime that someone ever tells you the Bible says, it would kind of like, it would kind of be like you coming out of a library and saying the library says. 
Somebody might wonder, well, what part of the library were you in? That's an important thing to name. And what book were you reading, right? Saying the library says doesn't really get you as far as being able to name what book. And so similarly, when we talk about what the Bible says, it's helpful for us to go, well, what part of the Bible? Those authors who who wrote those 66 books, they wrote historical narratives. They also wrote poetry. They wrote wisdom literature. They wrote stories about the life and teachings of Jesus. There are lots of different types of writing in the Bible across those 66 books, and it's helpful to know what we're talking about when we talk about it. And it's also good for us just to identify in in the space that we're in that the lens that we look at when we talk about the Bible might be different than the global lens of Christianity. You, You might not know this, but there are 80 to 90 million evangelical Protestant Christians here in America, in the U.S., 80 to 90 million of us. We make up about 25% of the U.S. population. Uh, globally, that, that same kind of demographic, evangelical Protestant uh, Christians, right, uh, make up about 900 million people, okay? So comparatively, we represent about 10% of that number here in the United States. Globally, if you're talking about people who identify as Christians, right, they, they might worship in, in other kinds of churches, Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, you're talking about 2.2 billion people. So then our experience, and when we talk about the Bible and the lens we use, makes up about 4% of the global Christian view of what the Bible is. And it's helpful for us to know that, that the access we have to the Bible via app and via written word is just different than what most of the world has access to. I want to make sure I get these statistics right, so I'm going to read them to you, that the world has 6,901 different languages. Did you know that? I know one and like this much of another. That's about all I, all I got. There's 6,901 different languages. Out of those, 1,859 don't have a Bible translation process started yet. So out of all of the languages of the world, 31% of those languages do not yet have even a word from the Bible translated into their language. Beyond that... Uh, 2,195 languages are in the process of having the Bible translated, but do not yet have completed Bibles. So that's another 26% of languages. They've started the process, but they've not yet completed it. So it's helpful for us to understand when we talk about what the Bible says, uh, that there's a, a global picture and a global conversation happening as well about what it looks like to follow Jesus in a context where the Bible's not even in your language yet. But for us, we do have the advantage of having access to it. We can go to that library and see what it says. Uh, And though we can do that, there are people who go, but why would I look at that book? It's it's old. Uh, I have friends of mine who uh, don't go to church, but we can keep being friends because I like them a whole lot. And for some reason, they hang out with Christine and I, mostly because she's great, right? And uh, when we talk about church, like it's hard for them sometimes to wrap their brain around gathering together with a group of people on a Sunday, because why would you do that? There are better things to do. And then why are we looking at a 2,000-year-old book or library of books? Like, why would you do that? And part of why they ask that is because it is such an ancient book. But let me teach you something about your brain. Uh, There are kind of defaults that we have in our thinking that are called cognitive biases. They're just kind of built in. They're hardwired into there. And one of those cognitive biases is called a recency bias. And it's this, your brain, by default, prioritizes things that have happened most recently or things that are newest over things that happened a while ago or things that are old. And it's actually, it's a good reflex. If you, for the last week, have been drinking milk from the fridge and it's been great, 
But this morning you went in and you poured that milk and you tasted it and it was sour. The next time you go to drink milk, you're going to hesitate a moment, right? Recency bias kicks in and you're like, I know it's been great, but this last time, not so much. I'm going to do a little like sniff test first. That's a good thing. But that's a default in your brain. And sometimes you can't trust that. That recency bias sometimes sets you down the wrong path. People who work a lot in the financial industry or those who are involved in HR and hiring processes have learned actually how to battle that recency bias. Because a stock that did well yesterday does not mean that it's necessarily a good investment for the future, right? But recency bias will tell us, oh, it was good yesterday. It's going to be good forever. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, Those who are in uh, hiring contests know that as they meet with their team afterwards to talk about candidates, the first ones they talk about are the last ones they saw. And often they prioritize those experiences over the rest. That's called recency bias. Which, by the way, if you're interviewing for a job anywhere between now and in the future, uh, if you get to pick when you interview, go last, if you can. Like, go last. You have a better shot of them remembering you because of recency bias. We're just going to hope those people didn't hear this message that they don't know to watch out for it. Uh, If you watch sports and you're a fanatic like I am when it comes to to NFL or NBA or, or, you know, playoff baseball's coming, right, which is pretty fantastic, you will hear announcers lean into recency bias all the time. This is the greatest player ever. That was the most amazing catch ever, right? The refs are the worst they've ever been. Well, we, we filter through what has happened most recently and we prioritize it over what has happened in the past. But here's the thing. Old things can be good things. Just because that's a default that we go to where we, we deprioritize things that are older does not mean that is always true. Old things can be good things. And so if the Bible is an old thing, the question is, so how do we know if it is a good thing? How do we know if it is worth studying? Well, there's a field of study called textual criticism that looks at ancient documents and asks the question, how accurate are they and how close to the original writings did this copy that we're looking at today get? And I could go on about what it is, and I understand about this much about textual criticism because that's just not my jam, but there are other people who are much smarter than me who even have better accents that could explain it to you. So uh, we're going to watch a quick video. If you've ever heard of us talk about Alpha as a church, this is a clip from one of our Alpha videos. I'll talk a little bit more about what Alpha is later, but I'd love for you to take a look at this and hear when we look through the lens of textual criticism, what can be said about specifically the New Testament writings of Jesus and his life and his teachings and the history of the early church. Let's take a look. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. 
Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous history of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. So if we're going to study the works of Aristotle, if we're going to look at what Plato said and say it's worth looking at, then the writings of the New Testament should be looked at as well. If we're going to call any historical documents good and worth studying, we have to hold the New Testament up alongside those to say it is also good and worth studying. And it's much the same with the the Old Testament. The 39 books of the Old Testament were written between 1500 and 400 BCE. We have two families of manuscripts for for the Old Testament. Uh, The first is called the Masoretic Text. Uh, So the earliest copy we can find of those is from around 900 AD. It's the earliest manuscripts we could find until 1948. In 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, dated back to 200 BCE. Now, that 1,100-year gap, when you compare those two sets of manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Texts, they actually are almost 100% the same. Over 1,100 years, the only changes happened in punctuation and in just little pieces here and there. Uh, one scholar said this about them. The Dead Sea Scrolls confirm the accuracy of the Masoretic texts, except for a few instances where spelling and grammar differ between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic texts. The two are amazingly similar. That is M.R. Norton, Manuscripts of the Old Testament and the Origin of the Bible. If you really want to like, go dig into that, there's so much more to be said. But it boils down to this, that the, the Bible, though it is old, old things can be good things. And when you look at just as a historical document, it is worth studying. And I could stop the sermon there. I could say, so you should probably pay attention at least to what it says, because old things can be good. And, and this is, as far as historical documents go, it is a faithful and good document. But I want to go a step further than that. And I actually think part of why we throw out the age of the Bible, or maybe, you know, maybe it's not actually that accurate over the copies that have happened over time. I think we throw those things out because as a culture, we have a hard time with authoritative voices. We don't like when people tell us what to do. Whether they are leaders, we wonder what their motivations are. 
if you're younger and it's your parents and they're giving you a rule, you wonder, ah, I don't know about that rule, right? Uh, the authoritative voice is one that in our culture we try to stay away from. And I think part of why we stay away from what the Bible says and we just say, ah, I don't know if we should pay attention to it, is it actually calls us to examine our life and potentially change it. And that is scary for some people. I think part of why we keep it at a distance is not because it is old and not because we wonder about its authenticity, but instead because we wonder what it's going to ask us to do. And so today, I want to actually look at a story from the Old Testament uh, of a man who came across the teachings of God and had to decide what he was going to do with that. You might wonder why we're not going to jump into the New Testament and Paul's writings about how all Scripture is God-breathed and and Scripture is good for teaching and rebuking. Part of that is because when Paul was writing in the New Testament and he said Scripture, he was talking about the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament yet. He wasn't saying, my letters are fantastic. That that wasn't what he was doing. Uh, Instead, he pointed back to what had been the story of God and his people as the thing saying, that's what's useful. So I want us to go there. We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 22 Verses 1 through 11, if you want to pull out your phone and follow along there, if you brought an actual like written word Bible, you can follow along there as well. Sometimes it's helpful to do that and not just trust pastors or like actually reading the words that are there. So you can, you can call me out. You can read it with me. We are in 2 Kings 22. We're going to look at the story of King Josiah. So verse 1 says this, that Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. And everyone just went, I'm glad I didn't have to read those names in front of everyone. You're welcome. Uh, Verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, there's a couple things in here that I, that I love just as an aside. When uh, the Old Testament writers and New Testament writers want to anchor something in history, they often use family lineage as the way to say, so Josiah was a real person. He had a real mom. Here's her name. Here's the city that she was from. Just so we know, oh, this is not just a story. This actually happened to a real person. And secondly, I love the summary. I love the summary of Josiah's life. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Could you imagine at the end of your days, someone saying that about you? They did what was right in the eyes of God, and they made their family proud. Now, Josiah's actual dad was not David. His dad was a king who had not been a very good king, and he had really let kind of the the culture and the land they were governing kind of go astray. And so Josiah will be remembered actually tied into the Davidic story. Right? King David's line is where Josiah is going to be pointed to because he did such a faithful and good job. In verse 3, uh, the writer says this, In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary Shephan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, Go up into the temple of the Lord. Uh, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord which the doorkeepers have collected from the people, have them entrusted to the men, appointed to supervise the work of the temple, and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, the masons. Have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. So many details, right? But they're really trying to anchor this thing, and it happened. Here's the history of it. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they're honest in their dealings. 
So Josiah had been cleaning up his father's mess for a while at this point. Uh, again, his father, in an attempt to keep peace with the nations around him, had let other temples be built in the area. The temple of God's people had been uh, ruined, and Josiah had been cleaning those things up, and he chose people he trusted. They didn't even have to turn in receipts afterwards. Uh, trusted people to repair that temple, and he actually got something more important than just a temple built in the process. Let's keep going. In verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shephan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shephan who read it. Then Shephan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord, entrusted it to the workers and supervisors in the temple. And then Shephan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shephan read it in the presence of the king. We're going to look at verse 11 in a moment, but let me just say this, that Josiah had looked around the, the world around him and he knew things were not the way they should be. And he had tried his hardest to create the world that he thought he was supposed to be creating. And you might've had those moments too, where you look at the world around you and you go, this doesn't feel right. I need to do something. And you have, and you've poured your time and your energy into a career that might be changing lives or into the lives of your kids, hoping for a better future. And Josiah, after doing all of this work to make the world around him look like how he thought it should be and fix his father's messes, he hears from the book of the law. And whether this was one of the first five books of the Old Testament or this was the whole thing, when he hears God's vision of this is what life should be like, verse 11 says this, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. King Josiah knew that the world around him was not how it should be. He knew that things were created to be different. And in that response of trying to fix things, when he finally saw the distance between what he could do on his own and what God was asking him to do, it broke his heart. And I think as we look around at the world around us, if we take the Bible seriously, if we take the teachings of Jesus seriously to say, this is what my life should look like, to some extent it will break our hearts to know that we can only do so much on our own. Here's where we're at. Old things can be good things. We've talked about how our brains default towards this recency bias, and we have to be able to fight past that to say, well, if something happened a while ago, we can't just throw it out. And just because the Bible was written in a different time doesn't mean that its message of hope and worry-free life is not timeless. If we're going to look at history with any sort of trust, then we need to hold the Bible up in that conversation as well. Scholarly research has shown that the Bible is more historically accurate and better documented than any other set of writings in human history. It's worth looking at. And we need to keep this in mind. When we go to the Bible looking for an answer to a question, we might get an answer that's bigger than what we're looking for. We don't just go to the books of the Bible to confirm what we already think to be true, but instead, our hope is that our eyes would be open to things even bigger than what we could imagine on our own. It happened in Josiah's life, and it can happen in ours. Now, I think when you read the Bible, you could start anywhere. I think a good story is a good story no matter where you start. But if I could encourage you to start in one place, if it's been a while since you actually took Bible reading seriously, or if you've never gone after it before, start with the life of Jesus. Start there. This story that was written over 2,000 years and tells a story much longer than that, the central character is Jesus. And if we read his life and his teachings, then going back to the Old Testament and seeing the freedom that he was offering means so much more. And looking at the, the history of the early church gives us a sense of what they were trying to live into and gives us freedom to not be perfect because they were a train wreck. 
part of why we have the New Testament is because it's hard to do church. <laughs> and I love that that is the message of Paul's writings, but we see that best through the lens of Jesus. And so if you need to start somewhere, start with one of the gospels. You could go with Mark or Matthew or John or Luke. I like Mark, uh, but you could go with any of those four. But I'll tell you this, it's better if you pick someone you trust to do it with you. There will be times in reading through the Bible where you will hit something and go, I don't understand this. And it's so helpful to have somebody who's reading the same thing who can say, yeah, me neither, let's figure this out together. Or here's what I've heard. And if you're somebody who's read through the Bible a bunch, invite someone into that process who hasn't before. Not necessarily because it's good for them, but because they're going to help you ask the questions that you forgot to ask a long time ago. They're going to help you see the things that you forgot to be looking for because it will feel very new to them. But if reading a story of Jesus' life is new for you, find somebody who's done it before. So when you have questions, they'll at least be able to start you in the direction of an answer. Now that idea of stepping into a relationship and conversation with a person to talk about the New Testament, and especially the writings of Jesus, might feel like a lot. It feels like a big ask. That's part of why it's literally starting tomorrow night. Uh, here Monday night at 7 o'clock here at the church, we're doing a class for two weeks of, of how to read the Bible, how to, how to see the overall story of the Bible. Pastor Jim's going to teach that. I've sat through it multiple times because it's that good. If you've never been through it before, it is worth checking out. And you might go, now sitting in a class and having discussions, that still doesn't feel like it's up my alley. I wish food could be involved. Hey, in October, uh, we literally rent out a restaurant in downtown Glendora called Frisella's, and Dave cooks the good stuff. It is good food for us and is completely free. Just show up. Bring whoever you want to bring in. And there at Alpha, we watch videos, much like the clip that you saw today, and we say, this is what Christians believe. What do you think? It's not watered down. We go at it, and we say, here's what Christians believe to be true. But then we have the conversation around tables of, so what do you think and what have you heard? And in those conversations, our hope is that God will meet you there. We don't just look at the Bible because old things can be good. We don't just look at the Bible because it's a historical document. We truly believe that the teachings in those 66 books written by those 40-plus authors as God directed them gives us a glimpse into a life that God wants to call us into. It's not always easy, but our hope is you'll find it to be worth it. Whatever next step you take, I'd encourage you to take one. Too many people have made decisions about whether or not to care about what the Bible says without ever actually reading it. So would you join me this week and ask God to reveal himself to you and to us in studying the life and teachings of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we know that you have great hopes and dreams for us. God, the, the hopes and dreams that we have for our own lives pale in comparison for your hopes for us. And so we ask that you would use those 66 books of the Bible, that you would use your word to guide us, to direct us, to give us a glimpse into what you're calling us into. God, give us courage to take that next step. Give us courage to reach out to someone, to ask them if they would read the Bible with us. Give us the humility to say, I won't have all the answers. And give us the wisdom to be able to seek out those answers. God, open up our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us. We love you. We pray this in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? 
share our podcast, or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.